Hello, San Diego. This is Gail Stewart, your producer and co-host of San Diego Screenwriter Studio. Joining me today are incredibly talented guest hosts, Raul Sandalin and Dr. Stacey Hankinson. Yeah. We've been asking you to send in two to three pages of your script so we can read it on the air and give you a shout out. You can send it to us at feedback. F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K at K-N-S-J dot org. Feedback at K-N-S-J dot org. But first, big news from Raul. You made it to Nashville, right? Yeah, in (laughs) mind, if not in body. Uh, We got a little blurb in Insider Radio, which is a Nashville-based online magazine about the radio industry. So they gave us a little write-up about our KGB and the FM radio revolution, the miniseries. That's awesome. Yeah. And Exciting. Yeah, a lot, lot of stuff going on. And we're still showing the episodes at the downtown uh, Central San Diego Library. So look at their schedule if you're, you want to come on out. We'll be there for the next few weeks. And again, the title of it is? KGB and the FM Radio Revolution. That's right. It's, it's screening right now at the San Diego Public Library. So today, Raul, Dr. Hankinson, and I are going to read and then deconstruct a couple of pages of our original scripts. It's called The Table Read, people, so this is what we're going to do. And to give everyone some context of what they'll be hearing from us in the next half hour, Raul, what's your premise of your your drama? Uh, Well, my drama is called Gorilla, and here is my official logline. Game of Thrones meets Oliver Stone Salvador. Gorilla is a one-hour drama that follows several families on both sides of a 1970s Latin American civil war. All right. Okay, that's coming up. Table read. Next, Dr. Hankinson, what about you? Well, we're going to talk about The Sessions. It is a San Diego-based miniseries revolving around a 40-something protagonist named Scarlett who is reinventing her life after a recent divorce, and it's framed around a series of therapy sessions. Interesting stuff, as always. Okay, and my script is Saving Jimmy. This is a half-hour sitcom specifically for Netflix, and the premise is, after being sent back from heaven during a near-death experience, a bored, reformed pool shark battling cancer, must rely on his edgy underworld skills when he joins God's crew in a celestial battle royale between good and evil in the underbelly of a notorious pool hall where souls, including his own, are going to be at stake. Stay tuned, people. We will be right back. Welcome back to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. We are just about to begin the table read for Raul Sandalin's one-hour drama called Gorillas. This takes place in 1970 in a Civil War-torn Latin America country. Exterior, jungle stream, day. Close-up of an ant carrying a giant object. Morning in the jungle, sounds of water running, birds, sun shines through canopy of vegetation. Marissa, a young gorilla soldier, drinks from the stream and washes her face. She is dressed in mix-match clothes, jeans, tan work boots, Led Zeppelin t-shirt, under green army-issued long sleeve, beret with a red star on the front. She has a backpack and rifle. Other gorillas gather nearby, waking up and preparing their equipment for a march. A young boy, Chico, a courier, runs up with a letter. Correo, the mail is here. 
Marissa? Si, yo soy, gracias. Marissa takes the letter and opens it. Chico runs off. Another gorilla, Ruben, teases Marissa. Un novio? No, it's from my mom. Interior, urban gorilla safe house. A group of students mimeograph flyers in front in the front room. The room is darkened. A student holding an Uzi stands at the window and peeks through a heavy curtain. Some daylight shines in. The students bustle around the room, bundling finished flyers, loading fresh paper, cranking the mimeograph machine. A mixed assortment of rifles, military and civilian, lean against the wall. Some of the students have pistols tucked into their belts. Exterior, marketplace. People continue to scurry. Chickens fly. A military troop truck filled with government soldiers drives past. Interior safe house. A red and white, a red and black flag with yellow letters FRLN hangs on one wall. The armed students work on the flyer. Gina walks in from a back room. Is it done yet? Almost. 500 more to go. Take a look. Walter shows Gina a copy of the flyer. The flyer says, support the FRLN, Sunday, November 9th. Free land or death. Good. Gina returns to the back room. Exterior hillside, late afternoon. The same two black silhouettes with rifle barrels as before. Zoom and focus to see two young gorillas watching the barrio below, sharing a pair of binoculars. They point and gesture. Close-up of the FRLN insignia on sleeves of their uniforms. Crouched and alert, they move away from the overlook and back into the dense foliage. Three other gorillas wait. The squad of five un- reunites with more po- pointing and gesturing before they all disappear into the brush. So there we are. That's gorillas, Raul. And uh, who wants to go first? Uh, where, where are you going to have this go, Raul? Uh, well, I'm actually pitching it because I have three different um, TV series worked out. I've got pilots written for three series, and I'm pitching them as we speak. Your pitch would basically be this is a one-hour drama based on, is it, it's fictional? It's fictional, but it's also based historically. It's a historical fiction. It's based on a lot of the civil wars in Latin America in the 70s and 80s. Uh, well, wasn't that the Contra stuff, too? To get money to fund arms to the Contras. Right, so, the Contras, absolutely. Yeah, I so. remember that. I just wanted to know what gave you the inspiration to follow this idea. Uh, well, when I was young, I actually drove with a group of students to Latin America, to Nicaragua, and we built a school. So let's talk about this in Act 1. It's heavy on narration. And so that's, that may or may be problematic down, you know, down the road for you because the director likes to, to kind of design his own shots and kind of get the feel for it for just like see one two three four small lines that's a big location uh to set up a lot of equipment to do four lines you may want to build that out that's my recommendation yeah i mean this is a big budget uh project like a lot of war and period pieces you know, would require a larger budget. Or would it? Couldn't it be filmed locally with a... um... Captain Milkshake is a war drama filmed uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. It was filmed in San Diego (laughs) with with Mission Gorge, right around the Mission uh, Dam, the Padre Dam out there serving as Vietnam. So, yeah. So, it could... There's a lot of little snippets that are occurring in probably the first five, six minutes of this script. So, there's a lot of these little setup pieces. 
So it sets up some tension there, which mm-hmm. I like. You have them just kind of right almost, who knows how far the distance is between them, two streets, one street, right? So it's very, there's some tension being built with that little snippet. And then we're back into, inside the safe house and we're seeing what they're actually doing in here with the mimeograph flyers and what the flyer actually says, which means that they're putting their lives on the line. Yeah, basically what they're, they're getting ready for is an offensive. You know, and on the, you know, word go, the gorillas are going to stream out of the mountains, stream out of the safe houses, hit the streets and start attacking the army. So you've also, so you've set it up, you've set it up with the, the jungle start and then you bring them to the safe house, but you have Gina in the safe house and you can tell she's kind of like um, in charge and kind of looking at everything and the overseer. And then you go to, you set up more tension by going back into the, at the exterior of the hillside where you have the snipers. You really see that they are being watched. Everything's under surveillance here. They're looking at everything. So that sets up even more tension. And I think when we actually did a review of this uh, back on our uh, COVID uh, screenwriter workshop, yeah. our writers group. We talked about the tension mm-hmm. in this particular one. So good job on building that tension, so that we are looking and we're feeling that oh my god, these people, these students are in real jeopardy here, which is the basis of a great drama, Raúl. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Once again, I do believe that if you're going to do a set location of a jungle, whether it be in Mission Gorge or in Santa Monica Hills or wherever you're at, that you would want a few more lines in there to really kind of set that up. Maybe she reads part of the letter. Maybe we hear her mom's voice. Something, you know, where you have a connection to make us really feel that that um, Marissa is really a, a human and, and that... We care about her. That's actually a very good idea. Have her read a little bit of the letter, see the letter a little more, open it up, Mm -hmm. spend a little more time with the letter. Mm -hmm. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, Dr. Hankinson, we are going, you're going to take us to to San Diego because you're a San Diego based. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I like that. You're listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. We are doing table reads this half hour. We just left the jungles of Latin America, and now we are heading to sunny San Diego with Dr. Stacey Hankinson's one-hour dramedy called Sessions. Morning. Scarlett's daughter, Amber, 19, and son, Blaine, 18, in the home kitchen. Blaine is making a protein shake. The blender is really loud. Amber is sipping a cup of coffee and sitting on the high bench to the counter. That's ridiculous. There's no such thing. It's totally a thing. How would you know if you never tried? That is the thing. I just don't want to try. It's just because COVID. Everyone just cooped up inside and they don't feel like being social. You won't feel like that this one restrictions are over. You'll want to hit up the parties and meet cool guys or girls. Maybe. I don't think so. I'm going to tell Mom. Scarlett enters the room in a nightgown and heads towards the coffee. Mom, can I talk to you? Well, like I said, I can't think without coffee. Pours coffee into the big mug and looking around. Do you know where your father is? It says, he left a note and it says, look at a cabin for sale in the mountains. Be back tonight? That's psycho. Okay, sit down. What is this? Something serious? Just my sexuality. 
Yeah, okay. Are you gay? I want you to know that I support you 100%. Love is love, whatever that looks like for you. Yeah, get a load of this crock. Shut up, Blaine. What is it, baby? I am asexual. What? I mean, that doesn't really exist. Okay, to sex-positive people, it may seem that way. But for me, I just don't want that. You wouldn't know since you never tried it either way. Why don't you try both sides, then make an informed decision? There are more than two sides, actually. It's those deranged Catholics. Why do they keep going to their meetings and leading them on? You know that's breadcrumbing. They're my friends, and it has nothing to do with them. Well, indoctrination is a hard place for sure. I still consider myself a recovering Episcopalian. Breadcrumbing? Excuse me, what is that? Throwing out a little hope that you will join something, date someone, hire someone, basically someone leading someone on, whatever. She should not be going out with those groups. Urban Dictionary strikes again. Why don't you try extracting your vocabulary and ideas from loftier sources, Blaine? Says you, the supposed asexual. Okay, okay. I mean, if you want to be homophobic, patriarchal, and anti-birth control, yes, then go to the mass, the masses or whatever, Amber. But I don't think you believe in those things, right? I go and I tell them that they need to keep an open mind. So you go for, like, some vigilante justice? I guess. Well, at least that's better than what happened with her and the Mormons. Oh, my God, true. That was terrible. Why are you breadcrumbing them. Yes, good word for it. Those damn Mormons coming here at all hours of the day and night. And that freaky one, what was his name? Elder effing Smith, professing his love for you on the porch. What a freak show. Baby, you are 19. You are way too young to decide that you aren't going to have sex, and I really hope you aren't trying to be a nun. It's just that I don't want to have sex, nor do I want to be a nun. That is absurd. I know, right? I can't believe my own mom is insisting that I have sex. I mean, at least try it. Scott keeps coming over here and taking you out. What is the problem with him? Not interested. Dad totally puts you up to all that bull crap, right? Shut up, Blaine. It has nothing to do with him. What is your therapist's name, Veronica? Why don't you discuss this with her and get the official psychological rundown on that condition? Yeah, I have a real therapist, not just a buddy like Holden. What the hell? Holden is a licensed therapist. Anyway, it must be a phase. Maybe. They all drink their drinks and look at each other. All right. Okay, so... I like the the way it starts out with indirect dialogue. For instance, it starts out with Blaine saying, That's ridiculous. There's no such thing. You know, that's if, it, if that was on the nose, he would be addressing it. He would be saying, asexuality, there's no such thing. But you didn't do that. You let him talk around being direct. And that's how people talk in general. We usually don't talk on the nose and define everything. Well, you know, I've, I've always been a student of the iceberg theory, Hemingway's iceberg theory. And, and so I really um, just naturally, I think, write that way in terms of that... A lot of what we, what the reader or viewer wants to know is under the surface. It's four-fifths submerged under the water. And then the, the top of the iceberg is just that one-fifth that we can show. So it's a natural fit for me. 
And Dr. Hankinson, I think that I mentioned this one in our writers group when we were meeting throughout COVID, and that is this dialogue is one, it's very relevant today. I think there are a lot of uh, young adults that are trying to find themselves and coming out basically and saying and having that honest discussion with their parents about who they are. And it's a tough conversation. You've done it though in, you know, the morning blender, chaotic, she needs her coffee, don't talk to me. I, you've kind of nailed this scene, I think. And and I thank you. I, I think too, it's something that um, the, the parents might have a harder time understanding than the kids themselves. Um, this idea of asexuality, it does fall under the LGBTQA umbrella. And, and we tend to think of it as maybe more being of the extreme conservative or abstinence side, but it, it actually is just um, a part of the umbrella of different, different aspects of sexuality. So let's talk a little bit about the relationship between Blaine and Amber. It's more um, a friendly kind of antagonism, uh, is at least what I was trying to capture. He cares about her. He does, and and I think he's he's thinking of the best, what he sees as the best for her, trying to push her out of what he perceives to be an oppressive state, and you know, just say, hey, this is this is not even a thing. Um, you know, get out there, COVID's. You know, just kind of deforming your thoughts and. And and so I wasn't intending there to be a, a, a sense of, you know, malice between them. I No, and there's no malice. I think it's just the teenage angst. But I also see his motivation, which is what we want to know about each character's motivation. In this particular scene, his motivation, to me, comes across as very protective. Yes, protective, yeah. definitely. She needs sensitivity to her issue. <laughs> and she's she, got none. She's not right. getting it from her baby brother. Or right? her mother, either. Or her mother, but on, that's on a different level. But it starts out with the, the baby brother, you know, doing what baby brothers do and what teenage boys do. So he plays his role perfectly. Yeah, and let's talk about the mother-daughter relationship. The mother-daughter relationship. Here you have the mother say, go out and have sex. That's like your best friend say, you know, you got to try it. It's really good. <laughs> the irony. Yeah, the, the irony is rich there, right? <laughs> It's crazy, but the mother-daughter relationship is this, and this is Scarlet. It's so Scarlet for her to say this. Right, right. And and I think it comes from the same place that we were saying, Blaine, that, that she's really just not wanting for Amber to be in this abstinent state. And and so it comes from a good place. I mean, it you know, it, it's it's really like, hey, don't don't go down this dark road. All right, you're listening to KNSJ, San Diego's only social justice network, 89.1 FM, the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. We're doing table reads today on our original scripts. We'll be right back. You're going to hear Saving Jimmy, and he goes to heaven. So that's our next scene location. Stay tuned. You're listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. We are doing table reads this half hour. We've been to the jungles of Latin America with Raul, then to the kitchen with Dr. Stacey Hankinson and her two adult children arguing over sexuality in her screenplay sessions. Now 
we head to heaven in my table read of Saving Jimmy. This is a half-hour dramedy. The premise, after being sent back from heaven during a near-death experience, a bored reformed pool shark battling cancer must rely on his edgy underworld skills when he joins God's crew in a celestial battle royale between good and evil in the underbelly of a notorious pool hall where souls, including his own, will be at stake. And we start at Heaven's Door. Here we go. Exterior, Heaven's Door. Moments later, Jimmy sees a sign. Heaven, he wildly looks around. God? Did I die? I died. Holy crap. He gathers his gown tightly around his waist. Jimmy frantically knocks on the door. God, please answer. Annie opens the door. Her apron is covered in white powder. Reggae music is playing. Hello, sugar bear. Ahem. Yes, I'm apparently dead. Where's God? Sorry, sweetie. I'm Annie, the powdered sugar donut princess. Would you like to come inside? Uh, no. Where's God? Annie looks Jim over. What's your name? Let's check the database. Annie pulls out her phone and begins scanning the database. Jimmy Hughes, retired Air Force, devoted coupon clipper, dedicated follower of the Lord. Oh, yes. Here you are. Dedicated deadhead con man pool shark? No, no, no. My sharking days. History. That's not what it says in the database, but it does show... Hmm. The database shows Jimmy has three months and two days. You have time left on the book. Sorry about that mistake, Sweet Pea. Annie hands Jimmy a freshly baked powdered sugar donut. But remember, we do come for you. Unless, can you still play? Oh, never mind, sweetie. Uh, should I? I mean, if it'll save... You might want to consider it. Now, go on, sugar bear. We'll be in touch. Jimmy devours the donut. Interior treatment room, moments later. The heart monitor alarm is screaming. The machines roar. Sheila, the nurse, grabs the telephone. Code blue! Code blue! The doctor and Code Blue team burst into the room. Clear! Defib! Again! They apply defibrillation paddles to Jimmy's chest. Jimmy is dead. Clear! Hit him again! Again! Clear! Slowly, Jimmy's jaw starts to move. He opens his eyes. The doctor sighs. Sheila stands ready with the paddles. How do you feel? Good. Mr. Hughes, you flatlined. Oh? Hmm. The doctor and Sheila hold a quick side conversation. You should go to the doctor. You should go to the hospital. Jimmy sits up and stretches his arms. He yawns. Oh no, I'm fine. Any, Honest. Any hint of discomfort, go directly to the ER. I will, thank you. The doctor and staff exit. I thought you went to meet your maker. Well, I tried. He wasn't home. So that's it. So that is part of saving Jimmy when he has the inciting incident where he flatlines on the table during his cancer treatment. Well, you know, Gail, I've told you before that this scene particularly and just your the, the whole premise in general really does remind me a lot of Warren Beatty's Heaven Can Wait. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It really has those tones to it. Mm -hmm. Really, Jimmy just met God. He just doesn't know it. And of course, he still refers to it. God as him, right? It's the uh, patriarchal thing. Yeah, he doesn't know it's Annie yet. No way, no. And they don't find out until the end of the first season is when we're really going to kind of maybe do uh, a little reveal on that part. 
And if I remember, Annie is African-American, right? They both are, OG and Annie, yeah. And I'm, I, I'm I just hoping. think it's great that God is an African-American woman. <laughs> Isn't that what I love it. I know, it's the twist of delight, right? Yeah. And of course, Jimmy is this uh, pale white guy, and, you know, <laughs> but he's going to be the pool shark, you know, right. he's the pool shark, and that's and that's where this thing is going. But it's, you know, it's I think the hardest thing on this particular script has been world building. Uh, yeah, and you've done a good job of it. In fact, you've done a good job with two world buildings. You've built the world here at the treatment center, and I guess, isn't it set here in San Diego? Yes. And then you've also created the other world, which is heaven. Well, yeah, and heaven, and that's just a, you know, that is a, it's a quick scene. Uh, he's at the front door, so it doesn't require a huge set or anything, but it requires something, but you're in one location. And I just love the irreverent view of heaven that you have it's just it's awesome you know and it's a kind of a touchy subject uh, because people would criticize me for it but you know it's i'm having fun with it and this is and it's kind of based on real life as i have told both of you this is kind of based on real life where my two brothers one of them was suffering cancer that he came down here and they kind of moved in on me did he have a out-of-body experience? He always has an out-of-body <laughs> experience. My family's weird. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I was just going to say I like how you've mixed or, or blended both the very real, like I said, the set in San Diego, along mm-hmm. with the, the more fantasy. I mean, you've basically kind of crossed two different genres, from a realistic genre to a some kind of fantasy. So I'm keeping in mind all the time, Raul, when we talked about your set location in the jungle for four lines, right, and the cost of what that would create, right? But in this one, I've created, I've tried to pull my my set, my, my locations down to earth to make them very easy. So OG and Annie have a, a home office warehouse uh, in, uh, in San Diego. So a lot of the action will take place there. And then I also have two pool halls. You know, one is where Jimmy goes with his brother and they meet cartel members. And then the other second pool hall is where little Louie Lucifer, we haven't heard his dialogue yet, but little Lucifer plays at this other, uh, other pool hall. I think it's great. I love your dialogue. I've, I always enjoy, in all of your works, the dialogue really flows so well. Here's a question, because you've done a few table reads in a few different settings. Mm-hmm. Do the readers try to read it dramatically as possible, or do they kind of read it straight? I mean, are they reading it like actors or reading it like fellow script writers? Now, a lot of people that are screenwriters are also actors, sure. and they come from the theater world. So they have some of these, these they, they read up the script beforehand, where the, we'll go over the script beforehand so that you have the mindset, mindset of that character. And if you come from the theater world, let me tell you, they put, I mean, they make it pop off the, pop off the page. Gail Stewart here at the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. We did table reads today, and right now we're going to talk about what we learned from those table reads, because that's the value, is you always learn something about your script. I really enjoyed the process, and again, I encourage anybody listening out there to send us a couple few pages, and we'll do the same thing. Uh, I just wanted to say one thing I learned a lot about. You had mentioned locations and the idea to keep budgets in mind, 
before you know you rent the helicopters and the mansions and you and know, the jungles. Yeah, wall off an entire city or a jungle. Uh, you had mentioned me having a little scene where I only had a couple of lines for a big you know scene up in the jungle mountains. That would take a crew of forty to film. So yeah, I'm I'm thinking about that different ways that we, you could cut corners. You know, set up so that the cast and crew uh, film all like the jungle scenes in one location, just reversing cameras, which is easy to do in the jungle because you walk 10, 20 feet and it looks completely different. Sure, so, sure, sure. So yeah, good advice on locations. Yeah, I, I think the value in reading aloud, even if you don't have others to read with you, you could read it aloud and hear the cadence and hear how how it sounds Hearing the dialogue, hearing if the dialogue is as snappy as you think it is, because most times it's not. But uh, that's my experience. I'm just strictly for me. Uh, And so it's very important to have it read aloud. Not only if you read it aloud, that's fine, but it's better if you hear it from other individuals, because that's the actors that are going to be reading your your lines, right? Of of course, it's better if you have others. But if you don't, you can still read it aloud. You're listening to KNSJ 89.1 FM, San Diego's only social justice network.